I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to the King and Culture Podcast. Everyone, it is Seth. I am here, not by myself, but without Luke. We have an upgrade today. I'm here with a buddy of mine I've known for seven or eight years uh, named Tony Zioko. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the podcast. Howdy. So what are you doing here? Whose idea was this? What's going on? Uh, you texted me and said, do you want to come on? And I said, absolutely. That, my friends, is how the sausage is made. Uh, so what was happening was I saw something on the internet, which I thought was funny, so I texted to Tony. And by funny, I mean hugely depressing and a problem. That's what I meant by funny. But it's uh, the UN was posting their definition of what, uh, genocide was and one of the definitions of genocide so this is convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide i'm reading off un.org right here an uh, article two under defining genocide it says genocide could be any of the following acts uh, definition a killing members of a group i think we know that one definition b was causing mental harm to members of a group uh, and I don't know about you all, but that made me sad and angry and laugh all at the same time. That now I have like mental health as a form of genocide. So I texted to Tony and said, we need to become more resilient and thoughtful about mental health. Will you come on the podcast? And so Tony's here. Uh, so Tony, tell us about um, what you do and why you do it and all the little letters after your name and what they mean and stuff. <laughs> so I am... Uh, an owner and a founder of Stories Counseling. Um, we have two locations, uh, one in the Mesa Gilbert area and one in the Tempe Chandler area. Um, we have, at this point, I think we have total on our team, we have about 18 people on our team. I think we have like 16 or 17 therapists. We have one massage therapist. She's fantastic. Uh, we have a practice manager. She makes everything go round. Um, she's also a member here at, uh, Gateway. Her name's Lindsay. She's amazing. Shout out Lindsay. Um, and we, uh, provide mental health therapy, um, in all, all modalities, but we are, uh, foundationally rooted in trauma. So everyone on our team, uh, for the most part is either trained in EMDR or has some kind of like trauma foundation. And then on top of that, everybody then gets specialized in whatever it is they, they, uh, want whether it's couples or domestic violence or teens or kids or whatever so we provide therapy and um, I think we do about 1500 appointments a month which is a lot so a lot of people come through our offices and uh, young and old and we do all kinds of things and and uh, I am a licensed professional counselor so the letter is LPC which basically means that I'm uh, an independently licensed therapist. I'm a clinical supervisor, so I help supervise our LACs, which are the uh, the initial licensure. And then once you reach your hours, um, then you can become an LPC. I'm also an ordained minister, so I was a pastor in a former life. And uh, that's what I do. So did you always want to be a therapist, or when did that sense of pull or desire or calling when did that start to perk up in your life? Well, it was something that I actually wanted to do for a long time. Um, 
I went to counseling when I was a child um, after I had some issues with my family. Um, and I just remember I didn't want to go to therapy. And my mom took me to this this Christian counselor and his name was Bruce. And he had a beard like Freud. And shout out he, to Bruce. Bruce. I can't find him on the Internet. I looked. Oh, um, and uh, and so I didn't want to go. I told him I wasn't going to talk to him. He offered me Dr. Pepper. And then I talked to him and. It was a good experience. So, uh, but then my mom found a, a paper I wrote in seventh grade and she gave it to me. And it was a, a paper about how I wanted to be a Christian counselor when I grew up. Wow. In seventh grade. Had you forgotten that? Uh huh. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it was like a career paper in seventh grade. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I apparently said I wanted to be a Christian counselor in seventh grade. And I, so my mom has the paper and, um, so it came full circle. So I think what happened was I got into being a pastor because I figured that was a job you could get into without a degree. <laughs> it's not wrong. It's so, not wrong. So I figured it was like the shortcut to helping Sometimes people. Sometimes we so, pastors are just kind of pretending to be therapists. Yeah. You know, so. so I got in and started doing that, but ended up, I just didn't think I was smart enough to go to school for therapy. And then, um, through that process of being a pastor, I started doing tons of counseling uh, premarital grief, doing funerals, weddings, everything in between helping couples. And so then my lead pastor at the time suggested I go to school for therapy and that led to this. So there you go. Well, 1500 appointments a month. That's a lot of opportunities for God to work and people to be hopefully healed. You, you used the term trauma. You said everybody's somewhat trauma informed yep. or yep. that word to me, I see it used all over the place. I stubbed my toe. That was traumatic. Mm-hmm. I lost a basketball game. It was traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom has cancer. It was traumatic. Uh, I have childhood trauma, which sometimes means my friends didn't play with me at playground. Sometimes means horrible cases of abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word seems to be applied to a, a lot of different situations. Some people who say they don't have any trauma, it kind of seems like they do have trauma. Some people who say they have a lot of trauma, it kind of seems like they don't have trauma. Uh, how do you define trauma? Do you have like a a pithy workable definition you like to use? Yeah. I mean, clinically I'll just give you the clinical, the way uh, we view it. Um, And so it's two words, very simple. It's disrupted neuropathways. I mean, that's really, so I think we know what disrupted means unpack neuropathways. How do you, how do you know if a neuropathway is? Yeah. It makes the connection in your brain um, between uh, it basically says X equals Y. So, um, uh, it's the it's the pathway in our brain that connects two things. So um, it would basically it's it's the very reason why um, kids when they are younger are not afraid of bears. So you might ask, I mean, you might think, uh, well, everyone's afraid of bears. It's instinctive, and I go, it's not because if you show a picture of a bear to a three year old or two year old, they love bears. They love teddy bears. They love Masha the bear. They love all the cartoons. They love bears. Because the pathway in the brain hasn't told them that it's bad yet. And so they learn along the way, books, school, movies, teachers, experience, that bears might kill you. Might kill you. And so it makes a connection in your brain and says, this is a bad thing. Um, and so when those those neuropathways that we have in our brain that connect two things, X equals Y, um, this equals this, um, get disrupted and become something potentially threatening, um, a perceived threat of some kind, it becomes a source of trauma. So that's the clinical definition of how so, we so use it. So do you have to get traumatized to be afraid by bears or can you just develop a pathway and then later on it gets severed or how's that? Well, I mean, 
clinically and technically we would view becoming having like that threat of bears, having that like fear of bears is technically like a source of trauma technically in the, in the brain. But most of us would view that as a good thing, which is. So some trauma can be good. A little foreshadowing getting, of, of our is, conversation. This is getting dicey. Trauma Correct. is good. Yeah, yeah. Tony's Yoko put it on the internet. <laughs> Stories review. Uh, so what then like wouldn't. So basically on what you're saying is like all forming and reforming of the mind is in some degree, a clinical expression of trauma, like a connection's made, a connection's broken. Those are traumatic from a, uh, clinical perspective. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. I mean, essentially, I mean, like if I want to improve my, my free throw percentage, I'm going to disrupt, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to change my neural pathway. I'm not going to disrupt it. It's going to be more of a voluntary, um, interruption. So it's an involuntary um, disruption. I mean, in a way, I mean, you can view it that way. I mean, someone would probably disagree with me, but, and they might be right. But for the most part, like if I want to change my free throw percentage, I'm going to, I'm going to change the neural pathway. I'm going to change the form that I'm throwing in and the connection in my brain of how I see things and whatnot. I'm going to kind of like change that, that pathway. Um, but kids don't like choose to be afraid of bears. It just kind of happens. So there's a, there's an aspect of agency here mm-hmm. that affects, uh, the way your experience changes trauma or not trauma. Yeah, I would I would say that that plays a heavy role for sure. Yeah, so like the other week, my daughter who's one and a half was playing in the room, like in her playroom, and there's a spider. And she saw it and she's like, buggy, and was walking towards it. And then my wife was like, ah, it's a spider. And then my wife and I got in a, not an argument, but we had a discussion where I was like, you're teaching her to be afraid of things. Can you not, can you like work through this? And so with, with that like, Mm-hmm. learning a new fear all of a sudden. Cause yeah. then, then she like, every now whenever she sees a bug, she's like spider. And even yeah. if it's not a yeah. spider and it's like kind of afraid of spiders. Yeah. I mean, that, did so, we traumatize her child? Is that, <laughs> is that a short? I mean, I guess if we're in, if we're talking about the culture of 2023, that's, <laughs> yeah. but yes, that would, you would, yeah, that would, that would be child abuse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, uh, I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the sentiment. That's kind of how it works. So in layman's terms, you know, disrupted neuropathways, with with clients, we often just refer all trauma is rooted out of a perceived threat, Got which it. also means if it's a perceived threat, that threat doesn't always have to be real. Um, so, and it's a, so, so it's a subjective experience. It's a perceived of threat. reality. Yeah, uh, and somewhat tied up in my agency or not agency, my choice or not choice. Right, right. A lot of times I view it as like when I was in sixth grade, I remember there was a movie that came out and it was uh, Chucky, the murder doll, Child's Play. Remember that movie at all? Um, I remember other people being allowed to watch it. Yeah, so I was not allowed to watch it. I was like, it's bad, don't watch it. It's scary. So I did what any sixth grader would do. I watched it anyway um, with my friends and uh, I was quote unquote traumatized for years because um, my brain told me there was a new perceived threat and that that means there was a doll that was going to come to life and kill me. Um, The chances of that happening um, are negative percent. (laughs) It's never going to happen. A doll's not going to come to life and kill me, but my brain doesn't know that and it thinks it's real. And so I acted accordingly. I was like afraid of the dark and I was like a sixth grader acting like a three-year-old, you know? So, um, I didn't want to sleep with anything in my room. I wanted, I didn't need to have night lights on and cause I was like afraid. Right. And that's kind of essentially, that's like the, the executive functioning of like how trauma kind of works. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to it, but essentially that's what we're dealing with. So I want to come back to that story cause that really illustrates, uh, like I think a big question a lot of us have when we're interacting with people who have or say they are traumatized 
is when you say, okay, that's a perceived threat. It's not a real threat. I want to know, like, how do you be helpful in that moment? Do you just say you're stupid, stop it? Or obviously that doesn't work. So like, how can we be effective helpers as we're trying to interact with people like that? But we'll come back to that more practically later. So if that's what trauma is, what do you as a therapist, some of the times, like you think about like, well, what, what isn't trauma there? And how do you see people using the word trauma that you're like, actually, no, that's not trauma. That's just something else or that's just difficult. Can you speak to that piece? Yeah. So um, I would say that um, one of the things that I like to categorize uh, as something that isn't trauma, and again, there might be like doctors and scientists and psychologists out there who are going to disagree with me. I don't really care. It's more just kind of um, clinically how I see it. Um, is that uh, one of the biggest misperceptions would be attachment wounds. And so I think when we, we talk a lot about attachment, right? So we talk about family systems and all these things. We talk about how we all have like these, these attachment issues. And um, I like to view attachment oftentimes as like the cousin of trauma. Like it's not quite trauma. And a lot of times people will take attachment wounds that they have and they kind of view that as like a trauma, which is why we often refer to our childhood trauma. And I like to go, is it childhood trauma or is it just like attachment stuff? Because attachment stuff is very repairable. Um, it's easily wound, woundable. It's a word I just made up, I think. But it's very repairable, right? So the attachment wounding that we experience that um, kind of uh, um, affects our safety and security um, and the way we attach um, in our life, I think often gets mislabeled as trauma, Um uh, because I don't, I don't particularly think that it, it's quite at that level. So attachment would be like wounds of neglect or like if we want to be seen, soothed, secure, like in our sense of like warm connection to our parents, not having that would be like an attachment wound. Like you might have a good, a generally good dad, but who's not warm and connected. That'd be an attachment wound Yeah. versus a dad that's like, abusive that yeah. would be more traumatic Is that yeah like it, yeah if you're talking about like neglect like there's like neglect like my dad was not there like okay okay like that's yeah neglect like i was hungry neglect like yeah right, yeah there's real, like neglect like my dad missed a basketball game that was important to me that's slightly different or correct yeah 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 like my, my dad always works all the time he's never around um those kinds of things to where definitely start to affect the way that that child views quote-unquote safety and security when you think of attachment it's safety and security and when you don't feel safe and secure you'll attach in a way that makes you feel the most safe and secure so whether sometimes that's an anxious or preoccupied or dismissive or fearful or avoidance kind of attachment that's just your your survival way of kind of like making making uh making yourself feel more safe and secure and a lot of times it's not doesn't actually make us feel safe it's not actually making us safe and secure it just makes us feel safe and secure but there's a big difference between the actual trauma um that happens to somebody those disrupted neural pathways that sort of involuntary like i was i didn't ask to be afraid to have this perceived threat in my life versus a i just don't feel as safe and secure it's not necessarily quite to the level um, of trauma. And again, some people might disagree with me and that's fine, but, but that, that's, just, that's one of the things that I don't, I think is, is not trauma. Got it. What, what else is on your list there? Um, I don't really have anything else on my list. Got it. That was kind of like, cause there's so many things encompassing attachment that I kind of was like, Oh, it's just, it's just kind of attachment it, stuff. It, it works. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if we're talking about trauma, those are generally the two categories. And so, um, I mean, if you want to get like specific, um, one of the things I ask clients when they come in all the time is I'll say, what's, you know, you know your uh, uh, 
give me your 10 best and 10 worst, you know, experiences from your life. It could be like that time at Target when I was nine or like my relationship with my dad. Um, and, um, people will come in and they, I mean, they have these like wild lists of things that they kind of experience. And there was one where, you know, she says to me, um, you know, the number one thing on her list, um, she's a young adult and the number one thing on her list was every night her parents made her leave her phone out in the kitchen at 9 a.m. I mean, at 9 p.m. Um, and, like, that was the biggest thing. Number one. In, yeah. the, in the world, right? And um, the first thing that went through my mind was, you're kidding me, right? Um, the second thing that went through my mind was, uh, this definitely isn't trauma. <laughs> um, uh, but, so I guess if you want to get specific, that's kind of, that would be, like, an example of something that is, um, isn't trauma. But what we're dealing with though, is we have to remember that to that person that might legitimately be the worst thing they've ever been through. So the worst thing they've ever been through is the worst thing they've ever been through. So their yeah. brain doesn't know any different. And that's what we're, uh, that's where our personal agency comes in and we have to do the work to go. Is this bad or is this not bad? Is this scary or not? Yeah. That kind of brings me to the next question. Like I hear, I've heard even friends closer to my age, but people slightly younger than me say things like, I have a big test tomorrow. It's going to be traumatic. Uh, or I got a B and I think I should have got a B plus. That's traumatic. And they're using it pretty flippantly. Like they're, they're using trauma and discomfort or difficult yeah. or I don't like it as mm -hmm. exchangeable right. synonyms. Right. So, and that I think is where, like there's like two groups of people I'm thinking about right now. There's a group of people who, wish that the conservative church evangelicals in particular were better at emotions because historically we've been a dumpster fire as far as like emotional health and like integration with counseling and psychology and there's another group and i'm really empathetic to them who are like we are becoming so just wimpy as a society we lack resilience we lack grit we're we're fragile and everything's trauma now there's no like Pain tolerance. Like, what about pain tolerance? And so uh, this is me just speaking based on without, I don't have, I'm not responsible for 1,500 appointments a month that I'm overseeing, you know? So, but what what do you see is like lost or what happens to us when we label discomfort or inconvenience or difficulty as trauma? Like, what does that do for us as a society or as a church? I think one of the biggest things it does uh, is it enables this, this concept of minimizing. Um, and what I mean by that is there are real legitimate things that people are going through that are really severe. And when we label everything as traumatic, when we label everything as this big, bad monster, we are actually minimizing the, the severe things that people are actually going through um, with, you know, having to leave my phone out in the kitchen at 9 p.m. And we're minimizing the wife at home that's getting hit by her husband. And so to me, I think the biggest thing that happens is we end up, we, we create a culture that just minimizes real actual trauma versus things that are just uncomfortable, things that kind of suck, things that, um, you know, are, you know, e even dysregulating for us at times. But I think it just minimizes ultimately um, a lot of that, that real, the real stuff that happens. Is this what a helpful exercise here as we're going through difficulty uh, to be like, to consider other forms of suffering that we're not going through, or is that, would that kind of be an unhelpful process? Like if, 
if I if I'm frustrated because the screen on my phone is broken and that's like actually ruining my day, if I try to like add perspective, like, well, think about all the people who have cancer today or who broke their finger today, or like if if I find myself as a person who's has this low grade discomfort and is like tempted to call it trauma, is relativizing that by comparing myself to others a good strategy or is that a bad strategy? I would say it can be good and it can be bad. And what I mean is that you don't want to go the other way and you don't want to gaslight yourself into thinking that your problems aren't that big of a deal. Because that's the other thing that happens is people Because come I in. think I hear that more than I hear the other thing is people are like having uh-huh. capital A abusive situations like, yeah, well, but yeah, I didn't get shot nine times. I only got shot eight times. Exactly, yeah. So it's we oftentimes would kind of gaslight ourselves into you know, thinking like it's not that big of a deal. We like justify their, the other people's behavior. We apologize for them. We kind of just go, oh, they had a bad day. Um, so we don't want to, we don't want to go so far as like looking out there and going, well, it's not as bad as that. And I go, okay, well, yeah, I mean like we could do that all day. Um, but um, a, a good, a, a good sort of reference is to go, imagine yourself having a broken arm and you it hurts and you have to get that arm fixed. You have to work on that arm. Um, there's a lot of things that you have to you see the doctor. You have to kind of take care of that. And someone else walks into the room and they have two broken arms. Okay. The first thing we'll do is we'll go, oh, well, I mean, okay. So they have two broken arms. So I'm over here crying, you know. I'm a wimp because I only broke one yeah, arm. Yeah, I only broke one arm or just my wrist is broken. And I go, is two broken arms worse than one broken arm? Yes. Objectively, yes. If you say no, <laughs> we have a different conversation. Two broken arms is objectively worse than one broken arm. But do you still have a broken arm? The answer is yes. Okay, so we still have to deal with that broken arm. So I think putting things in perspective and kind of looking out is always a helpful tool to kind of be able to go, oh, like objectively two broken arms is worse than one broken arm. However, I still have a broken arm and that sucks and that hurts and I have to get that taken care of. So my needs matter as well. So I think as long as we're not minimizing our own stuff, um, looking out um, can definitely be helpful. Yeah, so if I overuse the word trauma, I need to be careful about how I'm minimizing other people's trauma or other people's greater than mine suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, is there uh, like a boy who cried wolf dynamic here as well? That uh, Because here's one of the questions I have is people who are using the word trauma are doing it to get some type of reaction or some type of engagement. Like nobody's saying I have trauma to, they're always saying it to someone to be heard and seen somehow. So when people are using these word, this word trauma kind of fast and loose with just difficulty, uh, like, why are they doing that? What do you, like, so, so the girl who's like, it was traumatic, worst thing in my life, had to put my, plug my phone in at 9 p.m. Like, why is she using that language to describe a fairly inoculate thing? Well, I, I go, to, I go back to something that, um, I go back to culture, which is what, um, whether it's a culture of a, an organization or the culture of our society, something that I've heard, um, about what culture, what defines a culture, um, from, uh, Craig Rochelle that I, I think is a really good, um, a way to think about it is culture is a combination of what you create and what you allow. And so I think, uh, we focus a lot in culture, a business and organizations about like creating culture and creating culture. It's also a matter of, it's also a fact of like what we allow to happen in that culture. 
Um, and so if you allow gossip, if you allow these things, like your organization's going to kind of start to go down. Um, and so I think in our culture, I think there's a combination that we've like allowed, uh, this kind of like, uh, th this ability for people to kind of overuse these things, right? We overuse words all the time. Right. Um, and so I think there's an element of that. I also think that from a very innocent place, I think a lot of people have a hard time just finding the words, to describe what they're actually feeling because one they were either never allowed they were never taught they don't know how and so um, when my daughter was so, so some of it's just plain vocabulary gap correct i think we need to develop like we're if i think about we're painting with we're coloring with crayons and if we gave everyone colored pencils mm -hmm. just talk about their emotions it would prevent some of this language problem. yeah exactly and i think that you know because of that our culture has also allowed that because i think from a good intention. I think our culture, a lot of the progressive social culture has good intentions. I think they want people to be included. I think they want people to feel loved. And I think all that, so they like allow this stuff to happen is one. So the people use words that they shouldn't. And then they're like, yeah, but yeah. You know, uh, the other thing is when my daughter was seven, um, very minimal emotional intelligence, you know, she's kind of learning how to express herself and, um, it's raining outside and she was having a bad day. And she says, I don't know. I think I just feel like killing myself. Ooh. She's seven. Okay. So how old is she now? So how, how She's 11 now. So it's four years ago? Yeah. So she, but she has no concept of what killing yourself even means. She's seven. She heard it somewhere though. She heard it somewhere, right? Exactly. So. Yeah. Who she, she said it to you or your wife? Said, uh, I don't remember. It was me or my wife, but I was definitely part of the conversation. Oh, like and you're both in the room? It, yeah, probably. Um, and I remember I went up and talked to her and uh, I... <laughs> I was like, okay, what, what's really going on? And so we start to talk and, and I know in my mind, a seven year old doesn't have concept of this. Like it's just not something that they, they really kind of grasp. And so I'm, I'm At talking. At the same time, are you a little bit nervous as a dad? You have to be hundred percent. I imagine there are kids not that much older than that. Right. That doing do, that stuff. That do. Yeah. A hundred percent. Cause anytime anybody tells you that they're going to kill themselves, you have to take that seriously. Um, you have to. Um, and so of course I go up and I ask her, I go, what do you, what, what did you mean by that? You said this. And, and she starts to kind of explain herself and she, and then she describes it as like, well, I just, I, I was just having a, I was just saying I had a really bad day. Yeah. So in her vocabulary, I want to kill myself. Just, equals, just like a, ugh, I just want to kill myself. Like, it's just like a, it must've been at school or wherever she heard it, that she kind of heard this, just this like flippant kind of like, um, exaggerated language of just like, ugh, I just want to kill myself. Probably it's just a, a way of just going like, oh, I give up. Like, and it gets over you. So she picked up on that. She didn't actually want to kill herself. And then she described either in that exact situation or a different time, like getting them blended. But she pointed to the rain outside and she said, you see that? And we said, yeah. And she said, that's what's happening in my heart right now. Mm. And so it was like her heart was like raining, you know, it was like sad or whatever. So I, as a seven-year-old, she lost the, she didn't have the ability as a seven-year-old to kind of articulate the level of sadness that she was maybe feeling if kids were being mean to her at school or something like that. So she just used something that she had kind of picked up. So I think culturally we allow the word to be overused and then people don't have language and they go, they identify with the language and then they go, that's it. That's what happened to me. So I think people aren't trying to minimize other people when they use the words. I don't think that they're trying to overuse the word. I think they legitimately think it's trauma because they don't know another way to describe it. Got it. That's really helpful, that perspective. So here's the next question. So you a little bit shared what you did with your daughter when she was uh, acting like a seven-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think for there's like the 
that story would be helpful, I think, to parents with young kids or middle to young kids like myself. The question I have next is what about like with adults, like someone who's has the emotional intelligence of your seven year old, but is 27. What do you do with that? When someone's what's the best way to interact with someone who says they're traumatized? Maybe they are, maybe they're not like, what's my first move? Uh, not just as a pastor, but as a person who wants to care about people. What's my first move there? I always go back to IFS, which is in the therapy world, internal family systems. Um, it's a therapy approach. Um, usually, uh, right now, kind of really a front runner is um, uh, Richard Schwartz and Schwartz and um, Frank Anderson, and and uh, I always go back to that. And this idea of our internal family systems is this idea that we all have parts. We all have different parts of ourselves. And so it's kind of like Romans seven where Paul says, part of me wants this part of me wants that. Exactly. This part of me wants to do bad stuff. This part of me wants to do good stuff. Yep. This yep. kind of divided internal yep. thing. And a lot of times what we'll do is like if we're a Christian and we have this, like we have this urge to do, you know, something that like is sinful or we don't want to do it or it goes against, you know, or pulls our affection away from Jesus. We, we feel like we're like a bad person. We feel like our like faith is slipping and we're like all these things. And really like, what if your faith is really strong and you just have like a different part of you that's maybe um, being pulled in that direction. So there's this idea of parts um, that they really, really emphasize is that all parts are good. Now, I know from a theological perspective, people are going to go, I go to church all the time, and they always tell me that like I'm bad, and that's why I need Jesus. <laughs> so the point here is that the IFS system will, will it, it really emphasizes the idea that all parts are good because all parts have good intentions, and those intentions are to protect us. Doesn't mean that all the parts are always helpful or necessary. It just means that they're all good because of their good intentions to protect us. And so a lot of times what it is, is there's like a younger part and somebody has um, that they're kind of a- acting in in that moment, which is why they maybe are a 27-year-old and have the emotional intelligence of a 7-year-old because it's that part of them that's being activated, which means that something about that part of them is being activated or being set off or triggered by that. And so they're kind of acting in that, in that space. So because of that, I always take the approach that everyone's good. Everyone has these good intentions of just survival and protection. Um, Their systems are just trying to help them, keep them alive, you know, keep them moving forward. And so when people go into these spaces, I think the first thing you can do um, is not minimize their identity, not minimize maybe what they're going through, understanding that the worst thing that they went through is the worst thing they went through, even if it's not as bad as the thing you went through. Um, and so in their mind, their mind is really telling them so, that this so is that, bad. So that first step right there requires me to not be smug and self-righteous. 100%. It's empathy. It's putting yourself in their shoes. It's the ability to go like, wow, like, okay. Like I can, I can, I can try to understand that it might not be healthy or helpful, whatever part they're acting in right now, but I could totally see how they're, they must just be, they, they must just have this insecurity to try to like protect themselves and so that's kind of why they're in this space. And so I'm going to have I'm empathy. Rolling, if I'm rolling my eyes and internally mm-hmm. going like, oh, can you believe this wacko? Right. I can't help that person. 100%. And you also, the whole idea of just like, well, that's not what it is. And that's not what it is. And well, what about this? It's that's just, not what trauma means. Correct, Tony, Tony correct. told me it means disruptive pathways. Correct, that's yeah. not it. So stop saying you, that. Listen to this podcast. Do this, yeah, it's like, no, it's just sitting with them in that moment, holding space for all the parts to kind of go, oh, um, 
I can see how they kind of got to this place. You know, I can hold space for that, not minimize what they're feeling. Um, and so I like Victor Frankl has the, um, he's a, you know, dead Austrian psychiatrist. Um, uh, he's one of my faves. He has a quote and it says, in between our stimuli and our response to the stimuli is a space. And in that space is your power to choose. So what he's ultimately saying is the stimuli, meaning our emotions, feelings, sensations, um, and then how we respond to that, right, is our power to choose. And so, you know, one side of the equation will say, um, uh, you know, I'll be a little stereotypical here. A lot of times the Christian community, it's very much of like, don't trust your feelings. They lie to you. They'll manipulate you. You know, and so we're, we're taught to kind of push our feelings down and repress our feelings. And uh, because our feelings, because they might not actually be true, right? But uh, we're taught to kind of ignore them or minimize them. Um, and then the other side says, if you feel it, then it's true. <laughs> so um, and neither of those are helpful because they eliminate that space to choose. Um, and so what Viktor Frankl will say is um, hold space for that feeling. Hold space for that stimuli because it's neither good nor bad. It's just a stimuli. And, um, but move that. So allow yourself to feel the, the validity of that stimuli that you're feeling that understanding that when people are talking about their trauma, they're scared, they're afraid. And that's a real feeling. It might not be true, but the feeling of scared is true. And so holding space for them to do that. And then, then the person can move it into a space and go now, now I can test that feeling and go, what do I, how do I want to respond to it? Um, but it's, so that first part is just really allowing people validating what they're actually feeling not that the feeling means the thing is true but their feelings are true yeah i think right? that's helpful the the phrase i like to say is our feelings are always telling us the truth about us they're not necessarily telling me the truth about the yeah. world around me but they're yeah. telling me use the word perception mm -hmm. they're always telling me the truth about how i'm perceiving the world and how i feel about that perception and so i i have to be able to test my perception mm -hmm. like that's new information that if I try to ignore my perception, then I can't alter or shift or f fix my perception. I have to like receive it as my feelings are telling me the truth about how I'm perceiving reality. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so someone says they're traumatized. I have to kind of enter in, hold space, say, tell me more about that. Like that posture of curiosity. Uh, here's like one of the concerns I generally have both as a dad and for myself is I don't want to become or create fragile people. Like, I don't want to become a fragile person. I don't want my kids to be fragile. I want them to be resilient. I want them to fall down and get back up. I want them to scrape their knee and say, oops, that happens, and then move on. I don't, like, I don't, like, I want to care. I don't want to coddle. I want to uh, see them without making them babies forever, you know? And so there's, like, this, I want to validate their emotions and not, patronize them forever such that they never become a, an adult with agency. And so when I think about like fragility versus resilience, uh, a key question I have for you is what causes one of those two things to develop versus the other one? So how come some people grow up and seem to be resilient? How come some people grow up and seem to be fragile? Uh, so like what causes those things? And the second question we come back to later is when I'm interacting with a fragile person, what do I do? Because suck it up buttercup tends to not work really. And it tends to make it worse and telling someone they're fragile and a wimp doesn't really help. At least it hasn't that I've noticed or seen. So like talk about fragility versus resilience. How do you make sense of those things? Yeah. Uh, the, the, 
The word fragility and the word resilience is kind of an interesting one because uh, they're both very definitive. And I think the first thing is to get those terms out of your head because those things are, are too, uh, they're riddled with shame and they're riddled with um, identity. Um, someone who's fragile, someone who's resilient, which means that the identity of who you are then, now, and forever um, is someone who's like fragile and, and just going to crumble at any point. So I think the first thing is to understand the nuance of everything, right? Yeah, so give me some better terms then. Than well, I, um, I don't know if I have better terms. Maybe I'll think of them as I'm talking, but I guess more what I'm, what I'm getting at is like what we, what we want to get at is, is someone who is, uh, when we're talking about the resilience, someone who has the ability um, uh, to kind of just keep moving, keep going, um, not feel, not, not be held back by the things that happen to them. So, um, you know, the first thing I would say is being able to understand and identify with what triggers really are. Um, I'm really big on this one. And I spend a lot of time with clients on this one because this, I believe, is sort of like the starting point for a lot of people to kind of go in the, the path of fragility or the path of resilience. And so um, I think we oftentimes view triggers as these like bad things, as like this big scary thing. And we have to remember what a trigger really is. And a trigger is just simply the alarm system in your body. And that alarm system is just there to alert you if, if the bad thing is going to happen or happen again. And so it is just there to kind of alert you. And so you're not afraid of the alarm system at your house. Um, when the alarm goes off, it makes your heart rate spike because it might mean there's an intruder, which is the point of the alarm system to alert you of that. When I, when I first moved into my new house, my alarm malfunctioned uh -huh. three nights in a row. Yeah. So I just went into the, I took the alarm thing off the wall and I just disconnected the speaker and plugged it back in. There you go. <laughs> so my alarm has probably been actually going off for three years straight, um, but I just disconnected the speaker on it. Best tip for life. Just unplug yeah, the yeah. unplug the alarm. No. So if, but, so if I'm triggered, yeah, some mean, people want to unplug the it, alarm, which I would take as the equivalent of like getting drunk or high all the time. Yeah, just or yeah. some form of addiction. I'm yeah. And I can't fix this alarm, so I'm just gonna drown just, it. Yeah, just get yeah, just find a way to silence it, and and I think that. You know, you're not because so what you do when the alarm goes off is you you check the alarm system. You know, you check the video feed or you go down with your gun to make sure it's in your house and you make sure everything is safe. And then when it's if you're listening from California, you go down with your baseball bat, <laughs> not your gun. Sorry. I have a few responses, but I'm gonna keep them myself. <laughs> um, but then you you reset the alarm system and you move on, right? Now, it might take you a little bit to regulate your system, get your heart rate back down because you've just been startled. But the idea is, is that the alarm did what it was supposed to do. And it's just the personal agency that you have as a human to be able to go, is this thing, is this perceived threat real, right? So it's the trigger is just a, the alarm system in our body to alert us of the perceived threats. That's how our whole system is worked to deal with trauma. And then um, this is essentially there to help us in you know, the old, olden days to help our tribes survive lions, tigers, and bears. And so once, once we realize that there is not an actual threat, that the alarm just got tripped by, you know, got set off by a cat outside or something, then we reset the alarm, move on, takes us a little bit to get our heart rate down, and then we go back to bed and we're fine. So, so to use the words resilient here, a resilient person in the best sense of the word would be someone who is triggered intermittently, 
but is then able to trace that trigger back to its origin yep. and evaluate actually a threat, not actually a threat, mm-hmm. let their heart rate come back down and then proceed with their life. Yes. So it's not like a resilient person is an untriggered person. That, yeah, that's why I was a little hesitant with the word because yeah. I just think that's where we get the people who like are hardened and they're like, I don't feel anything. Yeah, they're I'm just fine. calloused. They're or, just, yeah, they're yeah. just callous, burnout, numb, fine. And I'm fine all the time. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, you're going to be intermittently triggered. Yeah. And so, but I think what ends up happening is we, we view triggers as like these bad things because we will, um, uh, we will kind of trade off anything just at the expense of feeling so that we can avoid feeling bad for just like a few minutes. And so we believe when a trigger goes off, we believe it. And so it'd be the equivalent of me just running around my bedroom screaming when the alarm goes off and my wife's going like, what are you doing? And the alarm's going off. Someone's going to kill me. You go, well, did you check? And you go, no, I know because the alarm went off, which means that someone's trying to kill me. And you go, well, that's, we would never do that. And so, um, and so I think what ends up happening is we've now deemed triggers as bad. That's why we have trigger warnings for everything. Well, this thing triggers me and this thing triggers me. I don't want to trigger anybody, but you have to go to safe space where you you're have to not going to be triggered. Things, and I'm, I'm going, not going to be triggered. Cause yeah, it's safe, and, yeah. And I just feel like we find ourselves in a spot where we're more afraid of the triggers than we are the actual problems. There you go. And you're good. like, and you're like, all right, well, I mean, we gotta, so I think there's a personal agency that people aren't, aren't having within this to, to go. The trigger is not the problem. The problem is the perceived threat that we're afraid of. And the, the, the alarm system, AKA our triggers are good to be able to um, be able to receive that alarm. That means it's working. And then we have to kind of, you know, analyze that, check that and kind of uh, go through. So the equivalent of this uh, the example, so let me, let me un- unpack before you get yeah. to your example, just to try to say, so to be triggered is like when your heart rate jumps, there's that anxiety, panic, yep, you're dysregulated, fight, fight flight, freeze, something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. So that's a trigger in case. And so when that happens, yep. uh, there's two possible responses. And so mm-hmm. I know you said you didn't like fragile resilient, but to keep using those things. Yeah, we'll a, use the words. It's a, fine. A, a yeah, fragile yeah. person will either avoid their triggers at all costs because they're terrified of being triggered. Yep. Or when they are triggered, they will just believe their triggers are always signaling yep. certain threats. Yep. Though, so they'll just kind of break down. Yep. Whereas a resilient person won't be afraid of triggers, but we'll see triggers as like indicators, like warning lights, house alarms, and they'll be able to like, Mm -hmm. they'll still be affected. The heart will probably go up, wave of anxiety, panic, but they'll notice it, name it, process it, and then investigate it and then proceed. So, uh, yeah. So kind of your approach to your triggers will kind of determine whether you're fragile or resilient. It's the starting point. Your ability to be able to uh, analyze those triggers is going to be the very thing. And I think, you know, people who just buy into the resiliency side of things, what I fe- fear with the word, for example, is just that people will then just like ignore them. Like you, like you ripped it off your wall you know, and turned it off. And so it's, yeah, it's that ability to kind of be intermittently, if you want to use different words, I mean, fragile and resilience fine, but if you want to use different words, um, I often, I often refer to the words as regulated and dysregulated. Um, people who are, who are, who are the ability to kind of be regulated, stay regulated, and the people who are just constantly dysregulated all the time. Um, and so the ability to be regulated doesn't mean you don't get triggered. It just means you, you're able to come down from it pretty quickly. You know, your ability to kind of go into that. So anyway, so I, I think that what, what kind of sets people on that path of being fragile or resilient is their uh, ability, inability, or resistance to be able to, uh, not, uh, to not view the triggers as like this big bad thing so when a, when a speaker comes to your college campus that you don't like and instead of just 
your alarm system goes off and you go, I don't like this guy. He's saying things that are against me and what I believe in. And so your alarm goes off, right? And that's fine and that's okay. But instead of just, instead of processing that and going, oh, is this a lion that's going to attack my tribe? We go, we go, oh no, he's just a speaker I don't like. So I'm just not going to go because I don't like him. And then it's the end, right? Versus we go, he is going to commit genocide because he's going to hurt my mental health. <laughs> yeah. So, so now we have to shut so, him down. So to some degree, if I want to become a more resilient person, I have to be triggered. Like if I want to grow in my mental health, I yep. have to be exposed yep. to some type of adversity mm-hmm. and work through it. And with coping mechanisms, I've either got from my parents or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have to be able to be triggered and know that every time you're triggered, it doesn't mean it's real. It's just, it's alerting you of the perceived threat and it's just your job to determine if the perceived threat is real. Yeah. Um, so, so here's the next question, just really practically speaking. So you, you go to church, I go to church. Let's like say there's a situation. I'm in the church lobby. Someone, I talk to someone. They're a very fragile person. Uh, everything like their, their triggers are telling them the truth and, or, or they're like, this is, and so like I want to be able to interact with that person in a way that promotes appropriate resilience. And I don't want to dismiss them and just tell them be tougher cowboy. Like give me some like tactical tips on like, if I'm interacting with a fragile adult, like what do I need to be thinking in my, like what am I preaching to myself in those moments? And then also what are some like tactical things that will help me, make this interaction profitable for that f- more fragile person. Yeah. Okay. So there's two camps to this. And the first one is going to be, there's a, there's a difference between like my role as a therapist and your role talking to somebody in the lobby. Yeah. Let's say average church member. Yeah. So you're so the average church probably member. Probably not a therapist, probably right. not a pastor. Someone who's talking to someone in the lobby after church. It's, yeah. it's remembering that your job is to not be their therapist. So this might not be the answer you're looking for, but it's the answer I'm going to give you. Mm-hmm which is that unacceptable live, live your live. We, we need to live our lives with intentions, not expectations. And so if you live your life with intention, um, then the, what's the intention of talking to that person? Um, not the expectations. So I think a lot of times when we talk to people, we have expectations. And so you feel it's really a discomfort that you feel in that moment to make them feel better because they're kind of like going on about something and you don't know what to do. You just want to be helpful and we for and so we then proceed with expectations of like how can I get them to understand this idea or do this thing? Well, that's not your job. So to some degree, me feeling responsible to make them be different, yeah, is telling me more about me than it's telling me about. Them. Yeah, I mean, it's not really they. If anything, you just need they just need to go to a th- they need to talk to the therapist about that. Um, and then their therapist, and then my role would be a little bit more direct in the ways that I would help them how I would address the fragility or the resilience with them. But your role is a person is just to have intention with them and that intention should just be to love them like Jesus and so a lot of times it's just listening and and going wow that sounds really hard you know um wow okay yeah well so I don't, you, I don't want a devil's to advocate because I hate that phrase but yeah. Jesus also put people on blast sometimes yeah yeah like hey let me tell you the truth yeah. you're the problem yeah knock it off so balance me yeah yeah there. So, the, so the second part of it would be it depends also depends on the currency you have with the person so if I'm just talking to somebody in the lobby and they're kind of like, or you're on the prayer team, it's kind of like come up to you and they're kind of like just going off. 
like you don't really have much currency with that person. So your role in that point is really just to love them. Listen, they should walk away going like, wow, I mean, they made great eye contact. Like they just loved me. They were really invested in the conversation. They weren't looking at their phone. Like, um, that's your role. And then even encouraging them to be like, you, man, you should, you know, you should talk to a therapist about that. That would, that sounds really hard to kind of go through. Um, but if you have currency with the person, then the, then the dynamic changes a little bit, right? Then obviously now you're in a spot where you can um, put them on blast, so to speak. But that's then where I always go yeah, back that, that to. That term, put them on blast, is probably not fair. But, yeah, well. But I mean, like, so like, hey, like maybe look in the mirror a little bit on this one. Yeah, like, so that's I'm, where I always go back to personal agency, right? Um, and so my favorite question as a therapist, instead of just like giving clients homework, which I do sometimes for sure. But my favorite question to ask is I go, all right, so, you know, when they first come in, I always ask them a question, which is like on a scale of one to 10, 10, the best one, the worst, what are you feeling? Where are you at? And they always, oh, I'm a 5.3. And you go, okay. Is so the, is that the most common answer? 5.3? It's 6.25 is the most common answer, believe it or not. Um, I think it's like just enough above average that they feel good. But um, bad, bad enough to be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah they got justify paying, right? So um, I have that number in my mind. And so at the end of the session, I always ask them, I'll say, um, so, okay, well, you know, what do you think would be one thing you could do this next week or these next two weeks or this next month just to, you know, if you're a five today, like what would be one thing you could do to be a six next time? And I make them tell me and they're like, well, um, you know, I've been really, really meaning to have that boundaries conversation with my mom, but I think I've just been putting it off. I think it's probably that you think that'd be good. Yeah. I think that should, I think you should. Yeah, I agree. I think you should do that. And then we, we kind of set that collaborative, you know, assignment. So if you have currency well, I, with somebody I like that question, because it, you're kind of giving them the dignity of being in the image of God and you're going, you're kind of like planting the seed of, Hey, you could do something about this. Yeah, and I like think well, kind, yeah, you're kind of have expressing a sense of belief in them, even if they don't have belief in themselves. Yes, I, I'm a big fan of um, just giving personal agency to people, and I think one of the issues with therapy, and it's a side topic, I don't want to really need to get into, but I'll just make the side comment and move on, is that I think we just we go to therapy too much. We have, we're over therapized, and I think what happens is people use therapy as the medication. So it's kind of like people take prilosec because they don't want to actually fix their eating they just want to not have heartburn when they have a hot dog and so people their lives are a mess and they don't want to actually like make the change and get better they just like to go to therapy every week like a release valve of sorts yeah yeah yeah. it's a way to like they feel better for a little bit and then after two weeks they need it again and then so they use it as medication so i think we're over therapized anyway um and so i am always a big proponent of almost like how can i get them out of my office (laughs) not because i don't like them but also because like you're not supposed to go to therapy forever you're supposed to kind of like you're supposed to move on. You're supposed to be able to get to a spot and maybe come back later and, move, you know, you have seasons of it. But um, so I've always been a big fan of just like, what can you do? Because I don't live your life. I mean, I see you for an hour. So like, I mean, like you got to, you got to, so I'm making you ideas. I can tell you what has worked for other people, but what can you do? And really, you know, and then they're like, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, and then they, they come up with the thing because it's the personal agency of it. I think we don't give people enough credit to, I think we assume that like, because we view them as fragile, we think they're incapable of it, which is like we have to which is again why push back on the word fragile because that then assumes that they don't have the they don't have the ability to to have the personal agency um and so i always believe that everyone has the personal agency they're just like either they either are refusing to or they like weren't ever allowed to or they like don't know how you know and so and a lot of times they'll they'll reply with um you know i don't know um and i'll say well you know um 
Now, you know, I can give you some ideas, you know, and I always give them some ideas and I always give them like a few. So I'm not telling them what to do. And then they pick one, you know? And so, so I always, if you have agency with someone, if you have currency with someone, I mean, then you, and you want to push back. That's my favorite question to ask. It's like, well, that sounds really hard. Like, what do you think you can do about it? Um, what's like one thing you think you could do? Um, well, I don't know. And yeah, that, that reminds me as, uh, my dad's a PE teacher, so yeah. not a therapy guy. Uh, but that was his disposition. I think it really helped me. I remember coming to him my freshman year of high school saying, I hate my English teacher. She's the worst. You know, I've, she, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, complain, complain. He said, yeah, it sounds tough. What do you want to do about it? I remember thinking like, oh, this is my problem to solve, not my daddy's problem to solve. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, well, I'm going to go to the office and switch teachers. He mm-hmm. said, well, I don't know if you can do that, but let me know if you have any problems. Yeah. And so I went and changed my English teacher. And yeah. it was like a formative trajectory yeah, yeah. shaping moment for me. A huge moment, yeah. Where I went. You took I, control. I can yeah. I can affect my situations. Yeah, that, exactly. That, uh, uh, Victor Frankl says again, uh, another Victor Frankl quote, is when you can no longer change your circumstances, you're forced to change yourself. And so you should always try to change your circumstances. And, and that's then, a lot coming from him as someone who's in Auschwitz for a while. Yep, he survived the Nazi concentration camps. Yeah, and that, he, it's hard to call that guy unsympathetic when exactly, he was literally exactly. in concentration camps for a while. Yeah. And so I think, you know, giving, you know, assuming that people have the personal agency to make, to make good decisions, to be able to move forward and take steps in their life also doesn't buy into the narrative of powerlessness. And so I think when we, when we, when we're talking with people, if we, if we approach it with intention, not expectation, then the intention, right, is just to see them, love them, hear them, encourage them, empower them, not the expectation. Otherwise you're taking on the expectation that like, well, they can't fix it. They're powerless. I have to, I have to give them the right advice now. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to give them the right advice. I think they, maybe they have it in them and maybe they just might need a shove from you. Um, And so that's generally the way that I, I approach it. Cool. All right. Last question. A lot of people come into your office and uh, I assume a lot of people go to therapy at a Christian counselor because somehow the church like they went to church for help first and then like their community group or their pastor or whatever either didn't help or made it worse. If you could give one, please for the love of God, Ironwood church do this instead of that. So this is your one opportunity to give silver bullet to the church of which you're a covenant member, please for the love of God, do this instead of that one practical take home advice. Hmm. A lot of pressure. Um, I would say that while I don't think it's intentional, I think a lot of churches, not just Ironwood church, but I think a lot of churches spiritually gaslight people. So tell me that. And I think it affects a lot of attachment that they have because again, if we're talking about attachment, we're talking about our ability to be safe and secure. Well, if you know Jesus, (laughs) don't you think that that's going to really help your attachment and help your ability to be safe and secure in your life. And I would agree, right? But what happens is churches, I think, out of an insecurity with the church, out of just the practicality as well of being a nonprofit organization who has to, like, get people to come and give them money so they can, like, pay for their mission of spreading the gospel, there's, like, this urgency a lot of times to, like, be a part of it. And we get caught up in a lot of church stuff. And then when people come into my office, they're always they're always feeling so much shame and they're feeling like God's not on their side or they let God down. And when you break it down as to like what's really going on, it's church stuff. 
I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not going to a small group. I'm not serving. I haven't been going to church. They feel really guilty about it. I think churches accidentally spiritually gaslight people with like, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You're a son and daughter, right? Um, uh, God saves you. But also if you don't do it our way, you know, sign up for the ministry fair. Otherwise, like... So gaslight's like that really, mixed message thing. Is yeah, that, cognitive so, dissonance, yeah. Yeah, so it'd be like saying, hey, Jesus saved you by grace alone, through faith alone. Yeah. Also, if you're uh, skip church once, go to brunch, maybe God yeah. doesn't love you. And most people come in and they feel... This literally happened this morning. I had a guy come in and he just was just like... I mean, I the whole session was just me trying to remind him that like as our awareness and our conviction and pursuit of sanctification and holiness grows um, with the Lord um, using the gospel gap that, that Luke talks about. Um, I was drawing this out for him and I was like, but we still also sin equally. And so we have to continually bridge that with the gospel. Um, he had this expectation that like he was going to like just be like fit. Like I, I surrender the gospel and like, I'm not going to have this issue with like porn anymore. And I'm not gonna have all these things. And it's like, well, hang on. And he just gets in his head and the whole session was just reminding him that, like, whoa, dude, like, you don't have to, like, you don't have to do all these church stuff to get, like, a junior Holy Spirit badge and be, like, a good, you don't have to, like, earn your way back to them. And so we do that a lot. And I think a lot of people feel a lot of shame with church because, like, they haven't gone in a while or they're not really serving or it's just a busy season with their kids' sports. And so they haven't been able, and they feel this, like, shame and guilt around it. And then they end up in my office and then I have to, like, Remind them that, like, you know, you're a good person, and then they go to church, and the church is like, you're a bad person, because mm. that's why you need Jesus, and they're like, now I'm confused. And it's like, so it's this idea that, like, God made you, so you're good. Like, God made you. you you're made in his image. We just have to receive it. Yeah, you're good, Genesis 1 and 2, sinful, then Genesis 3. Yeah. Yeah. We just have so to let receive me, it. Let me summarize this back to you. You tell me it's accurate. Mm-hmm. The main thing we could do is assume people are carrying tons of shame. Lots of it. Is that a fair thing? And they're constantly trying to earn and prove and win over the pastor's approval and God's approval yeah. by doing all the things and serving in the men's ministry and doing all this and doing that. And yeah, I, I think that if those of you who are listening, obviously if you're not listening, you're not hearing these words. But anyway, if those of like you're, you're tuned in, if we walk around assuming people have are carrying way more shame than we think they are, like I think we feel alone in our shame and we see other people and think that they're, uh, self-righteous or smug or doing fine, probably they're carrying tons of shame as well. And as we get to know them better, we'll probably see that shame and we can help them feel seen and loved. And that's part of how shame is healed. So I appreciate that, Tony. Is like a, mm-hmm. As a member of this church, you're going, I know these people, at least the ones that I know, they're probably carrying more shame than you think. And I bet that's not just the ones in your office. I bet that's most of us as well. Yeah. I have one more note on resilience, if you don't mind an extra minute. Sure. P.S. P.S. Okay. I think when we're talking about the resilience concept, I think one of the, I've, I've wrestled with this in my life because I've encountered tons of trauma in my own life. I was, uh, um, I was uh, molested when I was younger um, and, uh, and I'm just putting it out there because I feel like it's important to share that I can relate. I was molested when I was younger. Um, I was uh, also by another person was also sexually assaulted and raped for about 10 consecutive years. So I've been through some stuff. Wow. So here's the thing. I feel like I'm at a spot in my life where I go, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like in a good place. Like I got a good family. I got a good church and make good money. I'm successful in business. Like I feel like I kind of turned out okay. So how do I wrestle with the idea that I want my kids to have a better life than I did? Right. But I also feel like what I went through made me who I am. So how do you wrestle with that tension? 
Well, one of the things I've discovered was that it's not, um, it's, it's not the, uh, uh, it's not the crap that I went through that made me who I am. It was the discomfort that made me who I am. Unfortunately, the crap, the discomfort that I experienced came in the form of trauma, right? So the hardships that I went through didn't make me who I am. It was the discomfort of the hardships. And so I don't want my kid to go through what I went through, but I also feel like it made me who I am. So I don't want them to do that. So I realized that if I want my kids to be resilient, I don't want to wish trauma on them. I don't want to wish, I don't want my kid to fall and scrape his knee, right? I really don't, but I also want my kid, but I realized that I don't have to, I don't need to, um, I don't need to pursue the hardships of life. I just need to be able to be uncomfortable. And so I need to pursue discomfort, seek discomfort, um, and for a lot of us, the discomfort we went through came in the form of hardship. And I think that's unfortunate and that's the trauma. But, um, but I realized what made me who I am was the discomfort. So you want to be a resilient person. You don't have to have gone through all of the crap that everyone has been through. But as long as you are constantly pursuing discomfort in your life, as long as you're doing those things um, to be uncomfortable in your life, that's what's going to eventually make you resilient. So growth comes through some form of stress. Like mm-hmm. that's how you build muscle. You stress your muscle. That's mm-hmm. how you build emotional resilience. You stress them mm-hmm. through. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big story to share there, Tony. So I, I appreciate your vulnerability mm-hmm. and even the, both the past wounding that's made you, but also like how that's still affecting you and mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it is a, it's a powerful, yeah, Im- I've it, been it's a powerful image that in some way I think we all connect with. Yeah. And I've got a lot of things that come from it and I'm, you know, you continually work on it. It doesn't define me um, by any means. You know, I've resolved a lot of things and I go to therapy myself. Um, I've, you know, developed an eating disorder um, in middle school because of it. I have a lot of things I still struggle with to this day because of it, but it's not an excuse. Um, And, and because of that, it doesn't mean that I now have to like make my life, my kids' life hard too. (laughs) Cause like, uh, because I somehow like came out of it and, made me a better person. So you go, no, it's the discomfort though. So I, what our rule in our house is that our kids always have to choose something uncomfortable. Mm. And so like right now my daughter hates piano, but I make her take lessons. Yeah. Cause it's uncomfortable. She doesn't like it. Um, so as long as you're constantly choosing discomfort, um, in your life, um, you're going to inevitably be a more resilient person. Yeah. I like that empathy without excuse, uh, no growth without difficulty or discomfort. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Tony. Uh, if people want to find out more about your practice, storiescounseling.com, or what's the website? Yeah, it's just storiescounseling.com. You can go there. You can book a massage with $90 off your first massage. I mean, $40 off your first massage. $90 off. Um, well, you can also explore kind of all the different therapists we have. Uh, if you feel like you need therapy, our practice manager, Lindsay, was wonderful. She'll talk to you on the phone. She'll help you find somebody. Um, we got a lot of that. And you can also find us on Instagram at stories counseling. Um, and I am also on Instagram, which is new since February. Um, I haven't been on Instagram in like seven years, but I got on this past year. So I post videos like, you know, uh, like what is gaslighting and all these things, things like that. So you can find me at Tony Z therapy, um, on Instagram as well. Very great. And sometimes we'll see you playing bass on Sunday mornings. Yes, indeed. Play bass Sundays. My wife sings, um, I'd like to play bass more, but my son plays travel hockey. And so unfortunately, um, I usually can't commit to a whole can't Sunday. Can't be two places at once. Fortunately, yeah. I mean, fortunately with the new service times, um, that will be helpful 
you know, because sometimes I just sometimes I just can't make the four o'clock. You know yeah. what I mean? So well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Like, share, and describe with all the fragile people in your life. <laughs> just kidding. Don't do that. That probably won't help them. But seriously, uh, if you've been blessed by this podcast or even some of what Tony said, it'd be great to share it. Some people are just afraid of therapy. That's why they haven't gone yet. It'd be good for them to go. And this might help normalize it for them. Uh, uh, but Lord be with us. Make us loving people. <laughs>